The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 21st, 2019. On this week's show, ESPN's Jeff Hassan will be here to discuss the Astros' walk-off Game 6 win over the Yankees and Houston's World Series matchup with the Washington Nationals. Kevin Clark of The Ringer will also be here to talk about the Rams' trade for Jalen Ramsey, the most all-in NFL transaction of the last decade, according to Kevin Clark. And finally, Sports Illustrated's Grant Wall will chat with us about the state of the U.S. men's national soccer team after its shocking, disgraceful loss to Canada. Canada, Stefan. Disgraceful. What are we doing? Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio, Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Sad. Oh, yeah. I was upset. Oh, I was too, viscerally. I was really angry. It's the only team you care about. It is. I was not and the that women's upset team. when the Yankees lost in game six of the ALCS. Some would call you more of a sports scholar than a fan, but in this case, it's just all, all spleen. Live show. Which organ are you going to put forward at our live show on December 3rd? I'm reserving my organs. Some brain, some heart, some kidney. Whichever is the most appropriate on that date. Some pancreas. December 3rd at the Hamilton Live in D.C. Longerhans might be involved. (laughs) Ryan Longerhans, former short-lived major leaguer. Slate.com slash live for tickets and information. That is December 3rd, a Tuesday, Hamilton Live in D.C. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. On Saturday in Houston, the Astros' Jose Altuve hit a walk off two run homer of Heroldus Chapman to ensure that for the first time since the 1910s, the New York Yankees would go an entire decade without making a World Series. In his piece for ESPN, Jeff Passan wrote, nobody defines the Astros quite like Altuve. He endured three consecutive 100-plus lost seasons, now bookended by three straight 100-plus win campaigns. He did it having signed for $15,000, having done nothing but hit until he was summoned to the major leagues at age 21, having grown from a contact-oriented sort into a menace. Joining us now, a menace in his own right. (laughs) Jeff Passan. What's up, Jeff? What's happening, boys? How are you? Thank you for doing my work for me. I'm just going to quote extensively from you on my introduction. But let's hear some more about Altuve. This was his worst offensive season since 2013, if you go by wins above replacement. But in this year of the rabbit ball, this tiny, tiny man had a career high in home runs, 31. And as you wrote in your piece, there's a very strong belief in the game of baseball that he is the guy you least want to face in a big playoff moment. So why don't you walk us through that series clinching at bat against Aroldis Chapman? Well, Aroldis Chapman, if you go back to the previous at bat, Aroldis Chapman lost his fastball. And you could tell he lost his fastball when he left it up at like 98. And it was not good. Uh, George Springer saw one fly by him, probably two feet outside. When Altuve's in the on-deck circle and he sees that, he starts thinking to himself, okay, you know, maybe I've got an advantage here because 
Chapman had blown through the first two hitters that he had faced. Then he walked Springer. And Altuve comes to the plate, and Chapman misses two fastballs up and away again. So Altuve, you know, he knows he's getting a slider. And he throws a 2-0 slider for a strike, and he takes it. And the question at this point is, is Chapman going to double up with that slider? Uh, I asked Eric Cole after the game, what would you have been looking there? He said, 2-1 heater down and in. Uh, I asked Alex Bregman, what have you been, what would you be looking there? 2-1 heater down and in. Jose Altuve was not looking for a fastball. He's looking for a slider. And, and his ability to read pitchers is, is one of his many, many great talents. And he got a slider and he absolutely punished it to left field. And look, I've, I've seen big home runs before. Um, you know, I was, I was there when David Fries hit the, uh, hit the one that sent uh, the World Series to, to Game 7 uh, back in 2011. And uh, I was there to see Barry Bonds break all kinds of records. Uh, but I've never seen a pennant-clinching home run. And uh, being there in that moment, and it being Altuve, was, was just a very poetic thing for this Astros team. That it, it's, it's interesting how these Astros are regarded by the by the baseball establishment, there's a lot of scorn, honestly, uh, cast upon them because uh, I think teams feel like the Astros have have broken baseball in a way in in the way that they've approached it, just so analytically and so cutthroat that that some of the charm of old time baseball is gone. But but you know what's really charming? Baseball teams that have George Springer and Jose Altuve and Michael Brantley and Alex Bregman and Yuli Gurriel and Carlos Correa and Jordan Alvarez and Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole and Zach Greinke. Like, that's really charming to me, seeing great baseball teams. And the Astros are unquestionably a great baseball team. I want to stick with Altuve for a moment because what's charming about Altuve is obviously his size. I mean, you could put this guy in your back pocket. Um, the Astros signed him for $15,000. I mean, again, talk about good scouting, good analytics. Um, and he developed into this superstar powerful hitter. He's got five home runs this postseason, 13 in his postseason career. Um and you just watch Jose Altuve play, and there's absolutely no way that you can process the physics of Jose Altuve. He's listed at five foot six, 166 pounds. He is not five foot six. Did you see him standing against my good friend Ken Rosenthal in the post game doing the interview? I tweeted Looks about that. Close. I tweeted about that, and Kenny wrote me privately that I'm five four and a half on a good day. Jose Altuve is not five foot six. He is remarkable as a as a just as a physical product. The ability to do this, I still don't understand how he does it. He is a bowling ball, though. He is so strong, and you know, height in two sports doesn't really matter. And those two sports, I think, are baseball and soccer. And in soccer, we see Peter Crouch loping along at you know what looks like six foot eleven next to a bunch of guys, but then you see Messi, who's who's tiny and who's strong and uh, who's able to use that to his advantage. In baseball, it, it almost feels like it shouldn't be that way. But in that series, you saw Aaron Judge standing on second base, yeah. six foot seven, and Jose Altuve at five five on a good day, standing next to him. And you're and you're like, well, you know, th- these are two of the best players in the world. This doesn't make sense. This shouldn't make sense. 
but ultimately this has to make sense because it's reality. And and what Altuve is able to do and and the uh you know the hand eye and the coordination and and all of the elements that make him who he is, uh it's it's incredible to witness and uh, it's the you know the fact that he's not even 30 yet. We're we're looking at a guy who is on a Hall of Fame trajectory right now. So you mentioned the Astros being perceived as cutthroat. I wanted to ask you to get a little bit more specific there. So the common perception about them is that they broke baseball because they tanked and they got all these high draft picks. But as we've been talking about Altuve, um, you know, they have that doesn't really apply to that many guys on the roster. Maybe Bregman is somebody they got because they got a high pick, but they've built the roster really kind of savvily with. Um, through trades and through you well, know, foreign and then, acquisitions. And then decided and, to spend money when they needed to and weren't gun-shy about trading for Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. But is is the cutthroatness more about their front office being perceived as guys who are just like don't see baseball players as, as humans or are they just assholes to deal <laughs> with on the trade market? Like what what is the cutthroat aspect of it? No, no, it's not. I, people like trading with the Astros because it's it's very no bullshit with them. Like what you see is what you get with them, and they have a value on a guy, and they're going to apply that value and and try to win. No, the the cutthroat part of it with them is that they they run the Astros more like a business than a baseball club. And and that was How something that they? for a long time has been foreign to Major League Baseball. This idea that, uh, you know, all the principles that are are being brought in from the business world and, and really that there are no sacred cows and that there are no things that we're not going to question. I, I have a story that's going to be running this week uh, going back about six years and how the Houston Astros changed pitching. And and the way that they changed pitching is through simple like question and answer, and it's it's Socratic in a way. So if fastballs get hit for a higher average, a higher slugging percentage, and yield a higher on base percentage than breaking balls and other off speed pitches, why do we throw so many fastballs? That was a question that was asked in 2013, guys. It's a really simple question that you kind of wonder why it hasn't been asked before. Or maybe it has been asked, and the answer has been because that's what we do, and that has sufficed. That answer did not suffice for the Houston Astros. And so this breakdown you see of fastball versus off-speed pitches, fewer fastballs are being thrown today than they ever have been before. The most successful teams in baseball are throwing fewer fastballs. If you look at Steven Strasburg, for example, when he came up, he was throwing 70% fastballs. This year, he threw 48%. It was commonplace throughout baseball. And all of this traces back to the Houston Astros' willingness to say, just because something has been done a particular way before doesn't mean it's how we should do it now. And it's not just with pitching. They've done that with scouting. They've done that with player development. They've done that in all different areas of the game. And where I think the disconnect with them and other teams is, other teams look at them as being incredibly arrogant, thinking that uh, they can come into this space that for for decades, you know, a century has been unperturbed and, and that they can change things. 
and and that they're seeing the success that they do just pisses people off because it's you know they are the disruptors and the disruption's working. The Astros go into the World Series as heavy, heavy favorites over the Washington Nationals, but since which I don't think they should be right. I was just going to say since May twenty third when the Nats hit their bottom mark at 12 games under 500. They went 74 and 38. The Astros since then are 74 and 37. And if you throw in the postseason, the Nationals have a better better. record. So is this actually a much closer series than we might think it is because of all of the things we've just talked about about the Astros? Gambling advice from ESPN's Jeff Passan. Yeah, apparently we're a big gambling company now, so I'm allowed to do this. I saw some odds yesterday that I got. I get emailed odds all the time now. And I saw some odds that said the odds of the Nationals winning the World Series in seven games, which was their best odds, were equal to that of the Astros sweeping them, which was totally asinine to me. Because when you're going into the series, it's not as if, they're going in with, with a starting rotation that's substandard or with a lineup that clearly has flaws or with poor defense or with a bullpen that's a total disaster. And the bullpen's not great. But when you can go with Max Scherzer against Garrett Cole, when you can go with Steven Strasburg against Justin Verlander, when you can go with Patrick Corbin against Zach Granke, and then, oh, by the way, you can go on about Sanchez in game four and keep your starters on regular rest. I mean, that is a huge advantage there. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this is not about gambling odds. People, you know, gamblers want people to bet on the Nats because the Astros are perceived as being so much better. Um, I'm talking about actual, you know, baseball. The Nationals... Oh, I'm, seem, talking, actual, I'm talking actual baseball, The Nationals too, like seem it. to match up pretty well here. Their lineup is very, <laughs> very do. strong. Yeah, they're a good baseball team, and they've been a good baseball team for a while. Listen, I do think the bullpen is problematic. I really do. And Tanner Rainey has, has stepped up, uh, which has been that third reliever that the Nats have been looking for. And Daniel Hudson's been incredible, and Sean Doolittle's been really good himself. And, and one thing that I, do, I don't think Dave Martinez, honestly, has gotten enough credit for how well he's managed this postseason. I will be dead honest with you. Coming into this postseason, I thought maybe the Nats' biggest weakness, aside from the bullpen, was the manager. I didn't think Dave Martinez, strategically, in big games, would, would uh, be up to the task. He has. He's been really good so far. And that has made the Nats even more dangerous, I think, than they already were. And I've been saying for months now, like, if there's one team that could beat the Dodgers, it was going to be the Nationals. They beat the Dodgers. And then the way they they just absolutely ran roughshod over the Cardinals, it's indicative of the talent level that they have. Let's talk about Juan Soto, who is... I don't know if he's the best player on the Nationals, but he's certainly the one who grabs his crotch the most. Which is a really good quality to have. (laughs) If you have not been watching much baseball and just tune in for the World Series, make sure that you don't miss any of Juan Soto's at-bats because his routine, which is known as the Soto Shuffle, and we should also say he's an unbelievable young talent. He's 20 years old. He's great. But the routine that he does between pitches where he glares at the pitcher and grabs his crotch is something truly to behold. Do you have a sense? There was a little bit of a, a, a beef. beef. I don't know if it was fake beef between him and, and the Cardinals and LCS. What do other players and teams think about this? I think he who casts stones with, with crotch grabs 
is just wrong. Like it's, it's baseball. I mean, baseball and it's great grand history of grabbing crotches is, I mean, we we're talking about going back decades now. And I think Juan Soto in, in addition to being maybe the best young hitter in the game right now is, is really reviving a tradition that, that mm-hmm. needs to be highlighted. And this podcast is doing an excellent job of that. Like, honestly, your essay there on Juan Soto grabbing crotches uh, is what this world needs. Like well, baseball does need more crotch grabbing. I mean, it is a historically ingrained. I mean, from the greatest players to Roseanne Barr. And, <laughs> and but it does sort of like the, the Soto, forgetting the crotch grabbing, the Soto plate performances are wonderful. I mean, this is like, other than they, they take up too much time, which is another separate issue for baseball, but I can live through the extra time if someone is like dancing in the batter's box. Well, if they're going to like waste time between pitches, this you might is as a good well way do to waste time. In an entertaining <laughs> way. Yes. Exactly. I was going to say, I would be fine with pace of play issues if they all involved grabbing crush. That would be perfectly <laughs> so, okay. Free advice for Joe Buck. I think just the first time he does it, just to get a laugh from the viewing public he just needs to say a disgusting act by Juan Soto (laughs) (laughs) and then we can move on and get on with the the rest of the series who else um we've talked about Soto um we've mentioned a bunch of players who's maybe a guy on each team Jeff who's not getting like top billing right now who we should look out for Anthony Rendon never gets top billing because he's He's just incredibly unassuming and a, uh, you know, a, he's, a, he's such a workmanlike player, right? And Another way to say unassuming this, is like relentlessly boring. He's like, yeah, he won't give, he won't give you your, your no, no, kind no, no, anything. No, 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 I don't think he's boring. Let me make that argument here. I don't think he's boring at all. There's a very long-held perception in baseball that Anthony Rendon just doesn't like playing baseball all that much and doesn't care all that much. And it was funny because you saw him after the NLCS and someone was interviewing him and said, Hey, Howie Kendrick, you know, won an NLCS MVP at 36 years old. What are you going to be doing at 36? And I believe his answer was hopefully I'll be on the couch with my kids. So for, for Anthony Radone, this, this game is, is a job, but it's a job he's extraordinarily good at. And he, you know, his swing, he looks like he's falling asleep with a swing and, and then he'll just crush a double to, left center field and hit an opposite field home run in the field. You know, he's, he's just sort of there. And then he goes and makes an incredible play at third base. I mean, this is a guy who's going to get well over $200 million this off season. And that is the beauty of baseball that you can be talking about a guy who absolutely nobody outside the city plays and knows, and he's going to be making $200 million in a month. <laughs> and what about for the Astros? Astros, who's unassuming with the Astros? I mean, everybody everybody in that lineup is so good. I would have said Jordan Alvarez before he turned into a pumpkin. You know, Michael Brantley, I think, is another guy who comes from that Rendon school. Michael Brantley, you know, his nickname in Cleveland when he played there was Dr. Smooth. And, and that actually is such a perfectly descriptive way for how he plays baseball. Like when Michael Brantley's at the plate, it is just like a silky, beautiful, natural left-handed swing. You know, like, have you guys ever noticed how left-handed swings are prettier than right-handed swings? Yes. Yeah. Like, I've never understood why. I, I, I don't get, like, the, um, the, the aesthetic part of our brain that ascribes uh, beauty to left-handedness as opposed to right-handedness. But 
Michael Brantley has the archetypal, beautiful left-handed swing, and all the guy ever does is hit. And being in the middle of that Astros lineup, I think he's the sort of guy who, over a series like this against pitchers like this, is going to put together some really good at-bats. Jeff Passan writes about baseball for ESPN. You can sometimes see him on TV as well. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Sunday in Atlanta, the Rams beat the Falcons 37-10. to In this game, at least, they did not need much help from their new acquisition, the star cornerback Jalen Ramsey, who they acquired from Jacksonville for a pair of first-round picks. A steep price, as we say in the business. Writing in the ringer, Kevin Clark said, it is not an exaggeration to say the Rams trade for Ramsey is the biggest risk an NFL team has taken this decade. Here to defend himself, it's the Drake of the Orlando Magic, Mr. Kevin Clark. (laughs) What's up, Kevin? Thanks for having me, guys. So this is not a thing that quote-unquote smart NFL teams do, trade first-round picks uh, for guys that are you know, Jalen Ramsey doesn't have his big new deal yet, but he is going to get one. And they didn't right. trade just one first round pick. They traded two. So are the Rams not smart or do we need to redefine intelligence or do we just need to wait and see? So we have kind of a small sample size with the price of an actual superstar who's available. I think the Khalil Mack trade started a new era of football where if you really wanted a superstar, you can get him for two first round picks. That kind of revealed itself when the Texans traded two first-round picks for Laramie Tunsil, who's not a superstar. And so in some strange way, two first-round picks, that trade value has somehow become devalued. And so this seems fairly normal to NFL media. But I just think that these types of players being traded uh, in season just didn't used to happen. And so, yeah, it's a huge risk. Are the Rams smart? I don't know. I don't think they're smart for this. I think they're smart for hiring Sean McVay and running the most innovative offense that the NFL has seen in years. And you know, 50 other things. They, they're on a bloat management plan. They, you know, basically don't even play in the preseason anymore. I think those things are smart, and this wasn't smart. So are the Rams still a smart team? The answer is a big, I don't know, we'll see. Um, but it is definitely, I don't remember a team that could win a Super Bowl acting like this in the middle of October. Um, is that because players like Jalen Ramsey typically aren't available in the yeah. middle of October? I mean, the Rams are now going to go, what, five years without a first-round pick yep. because of this and other trades. Does that say something about how NFL teams are valuing draft picks versus acquisition of players who are already mid-career and are much easier to evaluate on a continuum? So a couple of years ago, the Patriots and the Eagles got really, really good at trading picks for players. And the difference in most situations with those two teams is that we're talking about fourth round, fifth round. They did trade, the Patriots did trade for Brandon Cooks, a first round pick, but then got a first round pick back when they traded him to the Rams. Um, so I think that that is, is sort of when teams started to realize there's some contractual things that make trading a pick for a player advantageous because you don't have to pay the bonus and all that stuff. But now we're seeing those other teams take that strategy 
and make a much riskier bet, which is give up two first round picks or one first round pick. I mean, really giving up first round picks in general was sort of an old world thing. Like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and their John Gruden did it for Keyshawn Johnson, which seems like a trade that would have happened 50 years ago. Um, it's that sort of thing. And so I'm intrigued because I think that I was of the impression that draft picks and first round draft picks specifically were the most valuable thing in sports because you get into a situation where you can get a first round talent and he's under contract for five years. He's under in theory team control for eight years. And you know exactly what he's going to cost every step of the way with the franchise tag, with the fifth year option, all that stuff. And so I was of the impression you want more first round picks but then Kevin Demoff, who runs the Rams and along with Les Snead, they've talked about how they think the draft is a little bit overrated. Yeah. And I'm not really sure where I land on that just yet. I still think that the draft is really, really, really important. I think the Patriots know that and the Eagles know that. Uh, I'm intrigued to see how the Rams go from here, kind of issuing first round picks as a team strategy. Well, part of the arrogance here on the part of the Rams is like, oh, there are first round picks and we're always going to be picking at the bottom of the first round because we're just going to win the right. Super Bowl all the time, as opposed to the Bears trading for Khalil Mack, who are not as good or have not been as good as the Rams. And so they're, you know, the the Raiders are going to be picking higher with the um, with the Bears picks than Jacksonville will be picking with the Rams pick. But, uh, you know, you mentioned that first round picks being like the most valuable thing in the sport. The most valuable subset there is like the cost-controlled quarterback right. on the rookie deal, which the Rams have had and Jared Goff and, you know, you mentioned Sean McVay. And this is uh, a formula for long-term success in the league. You know, young genius coach, cost-controlled quarterback, let's spend a crap load of our cap space on stars on defense. Um, you know, we're going to just be, you know, we're going to need more fingers for all of our Super Bowl rings. And, right. and yet um, the Rams seem to be deviating from that. You know, they signed Goff to this big extension. I would have thought that if the Rams really had the courage of their convictions, they would say, Jared Goff is good. He's probably not going to be a Hall of Famer. Let's sell high on him. Let's get in another like rookie quarterback that McVay can turn into somebody really good and let's just continue you know cranking up the spending on other positions that would have been the smart move for me yeah instead they did i would say neither of the smart things i mean they signed him to a huge deal and they're still acting as aggressive as they were pre pre that contract did they forget really? I mean, that they signed him to that contract yeah no, is right. it possible that they just don't remember Someone forgot to process, you know, I told the story in that column about me talking to an NFL owner in March at the owner's meetings, and the owner was joking ar around about how his coach just constantly kind of complains uh, about the Rams. He's like, how are the Rams able to, to get these stars? You know, Marcus Peters, it keeps the league, and Dominican Sue, and the owner was telling the coach, listen, calm down, they don't pay their quarterback. One day, they'll have to operate like we do. And that's turning out to not be true. Like, they're not operating... You know, the way that the Rams, even though the Rams were quote unquote all in before, that was fairly conventional. Every team goes all in on a rookie quarterback. The Eagles did it. The Browns are doing it now. The Chiefs are doing it now. I mean, this is not the, the Seahawks obviously won a Super Bowl with Russell Wilson making less money than the long snapper on that 2013 team. And so that that's not unusual. What's unusual is going all in when you're paying a quarterback, what, $110 million uh, in guaranteed and 130 total. Uh, that's, that's the real... I mean, I would I would say it's reckless. Um, well, well, and I'm not. 
I'm not saying it's bad, but it's, it's an extreme risk. Well, let's pause there and ask, what's the Rams' strategy? They're not giving away these two first-round picks on the coin toss that they're going to win the Super Bowl this year. They're 4-3 and three right now. They have not looked like a lock to get back to the Super Bowl by any stretch. So right. their, their salary cap department is got to be budgeting for signing Jalen Ramsey to a long-term yeah. deal. So how does that potentially work for them? Perhaps poorly. They have 60% of their cap um, tied up in the top seven players, I think. And, you know, there's a couple of teams, the Falcons are like this too, where essentially they just start signing their stars to market extensions. And all of a sudden there's just not any money left. And that's really hard to do in an era where the cap rises $10 million a year um, and has since 2013. It's really, really hard to get capped out. I think they really are rolling dice on the next two years being a Super Bowl type year. Um, you can structure Jalen Ramsey deal where maybe the cap hit isn't um, that huge next year, but of course golf comes expensive. They can't get out of a Todd Gurley deal. And so I really do think this is going all in on the short term. And I'm not totally sure why they're doing it. Uh, and especially when you consider the offensive line has been the problem. In a lot of ways, golf has been the problem. Um, I don't think the defense and the secondary has been the problem. Okay, Aqib Tlaib is out. They traded Marcus Peters. They didn't have to trade Marcus Peters, by the way. This was a, a mechanism to get, uh, to get Ramsey's, uh, you know, get Ramsey a fit in the defense. So I, I, as far as long-term planning, I don't know if there is any. I think this is an extremely short-term move for the next two, perhaps three years to maximize this particular window. The galaxy brain move on the Rams part was to trade Peter so he could play against their division rival, the Seahawks, pick off Russell Wilson <laughs> and win that game. And now they're only a game behind uh, Seattle in the, in the NFC West standings. You got you to gotta think a couple of moves ahead here, dude. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about Jalen Ramsey. He drove a was he driven or did he drive the brinks truck do you need like a special driver's license it's florida you should know this <laughs> in florida there are actually no laws so it's fine what is ramsey's reputation in the league both on the field and off the field i seem to recall that he was like unbelievable as a as a rookie was maybe not as good after that. And now he's like also just kind of like hilarious. Uh, and I don't know if yeah. he's like hilarious exclusively in a great way or potentially in a detrimental way. He, he gave that inter interview to GQ and I thought it was kind of funny. He basically he took his phone out at one point in the interview and started listing quarterbacks and just ripping them one by one. And it was funny. I think that that in some way there was, I think there was maybe, maybe some front offices who were, who were turned off by that. Um, I, I have no evidence about that, but I think that when I think that NFL coaches and front offices are still just extremely scared of any sort of distraction and have somehow valued no distractions over talent. Um, but let's put that aside for a second. I think that he said of golf, I think he said something like he's average, something like that. And then Ramsey was asked about that, and he had to clarify that actually in the context of that interview, saying someone was average is actually a huge compliment. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's hilarious. Um, I, I think it's hard for a cornerback, especially one who draws attention to himself like that, to have a flawless career because they, anytime they get burnt, uh, which happens to cornerbacks, you know, at least a couple times a year, everyone talks about it because they put themselves in a position of talking trash. So, I think he's still an elite cornerback. Um, you know, one of the things I, that, that I think is underrated is his, his ability to tackle and limit big plays. I saw 
stat the other day that I think that his yards after catch is something like two uh, through his entire career because basically if, if someone catches the ball in front of him, the play is dead there. And I think that this is increasingly a home run league. It's a short yardage league. And if you can keep every play in front of you as Jalen Ramsey does, uh, that's usually beneficial. What else does this say, sticking to Jalen Ramsey and his personality and his superstar status, what else does this say about the sort of trend in the NFL where we're seeing players like Ramsey, like Odell Beckham, uh, like Antonio Brown, Pittsburgh Antonio Brown, not Oakland Antonio Brown, find ways to leverage themselves out of their current jobs and get to other places? I don't think Beckham was the same as the other two. I would say that it's a little bit different. I think people are, I think Peter King had a quote I just saw before we came on here about how an executive said the NBA is coming to the NFL. I think it's a little bit different in this regard. With the exception of Antonio Brown, I think that most of those stars were traded for equal or more value. Um, and teams are happy. People were saying, I saw a quote this week from, that was like, oh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. The last thing was that Shad Khan was upset he didn't play in week six, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no. The straw that broke the camel's back is that a team offered two first-round picks. Like, that's, they, they would not have traded him for a fifth-round pick. Okay? And so I think that players are asking their way out, but that's only very specific. Melvin Gordon tried to, to, to get his way out of, of uh, Los Angeles. I had to figure out where the Chargers played real quick. But uh, Melvin Gordon had to get, try to get out of Los Angeles, and he couldn't do it. Now he's playing on his rookie contract, and you know, he fumbled yesterday at the goal line, and, and now things are a disaster. So if you're a super-duper star, you can force your way out if a team's going to give you their value. And I think that's a little bit different. I think superstars will have more leverage in the NBA always because having a superstar like Anthony Davis, like LeBron James, like Kawhi Leonard, is the barrier for entry to, co- to compete in the NFL, yeah, excuse me, in the NBA. It's determined. No one is competing yeah. without them. The only players who are like that in the NFL are quarterbacks, and no quarterback is forced the way out. Jalen Ramsey does not automatically mean you're going to compete in the NBA. Kawhi Leonard does. So I think it's just a little bit different just positionally va- positional value. Um, and I think that, yeah, will, will more players try to do this? Yes, if you're a superstar, you can get fair value for it. I just wanted to end by talking about my favorite trend in the NFL, which is, you know, it's been it's been very well documented that Colin Kaepernick is still out there. But there there is a micro trend of backup quarterbacks being signed who don't even actually want to play in the NFL. Um, you had yeah. Josh McCown of the Eagles who had like retired and was coaching in high school. And is still going to coach in high school while he's playing. Yeah, it's not at all a distraction. He just flies to coach his high school no team. Every Friday, you know, that's the kind of level of commitment that you need as an NFL quarterback. <laughs> Just like kind of he's like he's barely interested. And, and, then, the, and the kind of commitment that NFL teams really have historically supported. And then <laughs> and then the thing that makes it a trend is Matt Moore, who is now filling in for Mahomes in Kansas City. He was a scout. Yeah, he didn't want to play either. He's like, I'm done. I'm going to be a scout. And they sign him when Chad Henney gets hurt. So the thing. The whole thing about Colin Kaepernick, everybody says that the the issue was that he was kneeling. You might remember that stuff, and he mm-hmm. was protesting. <laughs> I heard the that. issue, the reason NFL teams don't want to sign him is that he works out five days a week. He wants to play. <laughs> he wants to play. He's too, he's too committed. He's um, way no, too committed funny. to football. He needs to kneel more. He needs to work out one day a week. He needs to help Josh McCown's high school team. I think the end of that lie of, you know, he doesn't want to play football, we're going to sign guys who do. I think Jay Cutler being signed when he all he wanted to do was make a reality show and he didn't <laughs> care about anything. And, and I think that the opening press conference, Jay Cutler was basically like, yeah, I just they just kept offering more money. Like he was nailed on as the number two in the Fox booth. 
and Adam Gates went out and got him after Tannehill gets hurt. So I think it's been, I think, three years of kind of apathetic quarterbacks being signed and, and proving that the, the NFL is lying about Kaepernick. So it's, uh, it's, it's been, like you said, it's been a nice little trend and uh, it's, it's fun to see that exposed uh, as fun as that situation can be every couple of weeks. Fun for us. Not so fun for Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Kevin Clark writes about the NFL for The Ringer. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Josh. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for the Slate Plus crowd this week, Kevin Clark of The Ringer, you just heard from him. You're going to hear more from him. We will chat about Lamar Jackson, the amazing, fantastic, glorious Lamar Jackson of the Baltimore Ravens. If you want to hear that and you are not a member You can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. If you are Lamar Jackson, we will comp you so you can hear about yourself. But he should sign up for Slate Plus too. He's got the cash. Just $35 for the first year. You can do that signing up at slate.com slash hangupplus. The United States men's national soccer team lost to Canada last week two to nothing. And it wasn't as close as the score indicates. It was the first time Canada had beaten its southern neighbor since Josh was five years old. And the U.S. team consisted mostly of college students. I was a college student at that time. Shout out to Canada. They're improving. But they also came into this match ranked 75th in the world, just behind Guinea and ahead of Curacao. Former U.S. national team player Taylor Twellman, who called the game on ESPN, was not pleased. Let's listen. You tell me right now, you watch that game. Do you believe that this is what it's going to be? The United States men's national team, you're in a crisis. You know it. And anyone else that tries to deny it is full of it. They are in crisis mode. And lucky for them, this isn't World Cup qualifying because they'd be in serious trouble right now. Another American soccer luminary used the word crisis in the first sentence of his report on the Canada match. He is Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated. He's also the author of Masters of Modern Soccer, which is now out in paperback. Welcome back to the show, Grant. Hey, how are you guys? Good. Uh, Next to the Trinidad and Tobago loss two years ago that kept the United States out of the 2018 World Cup finals, I don't think I've ever seen as much anger directed at the men's team. Um, I think everyone understood that this would be a rebuilding period after that uh, game against Trinidad. But I think we expected to see some progress before qualifying begins next year for the 2022 World Cup. It feels uh, under new coach Greg Berhalter, it feels like the program is actually regressing. Where should we start to try to understand why? Well, there's so many reasons why potentially here. I mean, there's what's happening on the field. There's what's happening with the very complex system that Greg Berhalter is trying to install with this national team. And there's also the situation created by the U.S. Soccer Federation where Greg Berhalter took the job a year later than he could have. And as a result, it seems like the U.S. wasted a year that was the one benefit of failing to qualify for the World Cup. They could have brought Berhalter in in December of 2017. He could have used all of 2018 to install this complex system. Uh, Instead, he's been trying to do that in 2019, 
And the results are getting progressively worse. The U.S. lost the Gold Cup final 1-0 to Mexico. They lost 3-0 to Mexico in a friendly right after that. And this loss to Canada for the first time in 35 years, credit to Canada, but uh, it's another situation here where the U.S. looks like things aren't just not getting better. They may be getting worse. The reason I think people are focusing on the coach, uh, I guess, is twofold. Number one, the allegations of nepotism, the fact that Berhalter's brother, Jay, is a top executive with U.S. soccer, and the fact that other coaches who seem like they would have been strong contenders, guys like Jesse Marsh, who's doing really well in Europe right now, weren't even interviewed. It just seems weird. And number two is that... and. I'm curious for your thoughts on this, Grant, if these guys are just like overrated. But if you look at the guys that are on the field or in the player pool, there are more players in Europe and top leagues. It's not just Kristen Pulisic. Um, you know, you've got I'm not going to like list all of the players who are playing in like the Bundesliga or whatever. But if you just look at credentials and talent and there's youth on the field. It's like there's it feels like there should be reason to be excited about this team. And yet I watched that game and I just got really angry. It was just so bad to watch and the players weren't doing basic things. It wasn't like Burhalter was out there like tackling them or or something, but it was just a total mess. Yeah, there's two big things that you mentioned there. One is the process to hire Greg Burhalter. I don't know if Greg Burhalter was necessarily a bad choice. I wrote that at the time, but when he was hired in December of last year, I did write that the process was a joke because only two people were interviewed by Ernie Stewart, whose job was to organize the coaching search. He's the, the general manager he has been of the U.S. men's national team. And what kind of a job that's important in any field do you only interview two people for? I, I can't think of why you would ever want to do that. And so the two people who were interviewed were Greg Berhalter and Oscar Pereja. Berhalter got the job, but the people who were not interviewed included people like Jesse Marsh, who is doing very well in the UEFA Champions League with Red Bull Salzburg as the first American coach in that competition. Uh, other people like Tab Ramos were not interviewed. He's taken the U.S. Uh, to the quarterfinals of the last three under-20 World Cups. Another one was Tata Martino, uh, who won the MLS title with Atlanta last year is currently the Mexico coach, but was interested in the U.S. job. And we were told by Ernie Stewart that he didn't speak good enough English, which seems kind of uh, ludicrous now that he's leading a Mexico team that is beating the U.S. regularly uh, and was just fine winning the title in Atlanta last year. Uh, other people like Bob Bradley, like Julian Lopetegui, the former Spain coach who actually contacted U.S. soccer with an interest in the job. None of those guys were interviewed. So uh, it's very strange to just see how that whole thing worked out. In terms of the players on the field, there should be reason for optimism based on not just Christian Pulisic, but other players in the who are in the Bundesliga, like Tyler Adams, like Josh Sargent, Weston McKinney, um, you know, Timothy Weah uh, is a, another promising player who's playing in France for Lille. So there's a, a group of young players that should be reason for excitement, but there's really not a lot of players between the ages of 24 and 28. That's kind of a lost generation for right. the U.S. national team. This is the group that failed to qualify for the last two Olympic Games and then failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. 
But what I see, Grant, is that you mentioned those players, and those are familiar names to us. And there are other players that are promising, like Serginho Dest, who's a Dutch-American who's starting for Ajax in the Netherlands. What we haven't seen is all of these players on the field at the same time. Berhalter, because of this system that he wants to play— and we can talk about that next, he's been sort of piecemealing this team. So a bunch of Major League Soccer players, players that he's been familiar with from coaching in Columbus with the crew. So I don't even know at this point who U.S. Soccer believes to be the players who will be on the field when qualifying begins for the World Cup. Well, Adams and Weah have been heard, and Dest, yeah. might, Dest might not even want to play for the U.S., but we'll, we'll We're going to get to that, answer. too. But <laughs> the issue there is, like, why hasn't he been persuaded to commit to the United States? Well, it's a situation where uh, Serginho Dest has the leverage, and now that the Dutch national team has been very public about wanting him, and he's not committed or cap-tied, as they say, to one country or the other— He's going to make a decision, and it wouldn't surprise me if he chooses to play for the Netherlands. Um, in terms of just where we are right now with with Greg Berhalter and the players that he is picking, you know, there's been a lot of injuries to certain players. There's other players that have gotten called in. Uh, you mentioned Columbus Crew players who played for Berhalter there, like Jossi uh, Zardis, like Will Trapp, who seem to understand this fairly complex way that Greg Berhalter wants to play, but there's also real questions about whether Berhalter is too ambitious about the tactics that he wants to use. International soccer is very different from club soccer in the sense that international soccer, Greg Berhalter only gets his players a few times a year for a very short period of time. And uh, there's a reason why international soccer typically isn't as complex tactically as the club game. And that's the reason why you just don't have players together very often. Right, so and, and they're playing and they're playing in, to, yeah, they're playing in different leagues. They're playing in England. They're playing in Germany. They're playing in the United right. States. They're playing in the Netherlands. They're playing under different systems and different coaches. And Burhalter, you, you said this wants to implement this complex system. And that's basically the system. It seems to me that he wants to implement is that he wants to play possession style soccer, where there's a lot of pattern based movement and predetermined, um, runs that players are expected to make at certain situations when the ball is on the field. And That's, more more passes mean more opportunities to make mistakes. More passing out of the back means more opportunities to make catastrophic mistakes. Yeah, and that's what we saw against Mexico in that 3 nothing loss. The U.S. kept trying to play the ball out of the back. Mexico was able to take it off him. They scored a couple easy goals. And the question now is, will Greg Berhalter adapt and start making it, keeping it simple just so that the U.S. can get some results because they have games coming next month against Canada and Cuba again. And uh, Canada could end up uh, winning their group and advancing to the Nations League final. Yeah, the Nations League is kind of this like, I don't want to say fake tournament, but fake tournament. <laughs> it's less about the, na the Nations League than it is about what this says about where the program is. And as far as where the program is, there was this story uh, during the Klinsman era that Brian Strauss wrote where he got all of these anonymous players to comment on like how they didn't like Klinsman about how he was, you know, inflexible, didn't like play, didn't like certain players, just all of this kind of grousing. Um, we haven't heard that much of that yet with Burhalter. There's like a little thing about DeAndre Yedlin was like happy to be going back to England because it was kind of a mess in the U.S. But like that's not really anything that we 
Denardi now. Like, are we at the stage, are we about to be at the stage where we're going to get like an article with 10 anonymous players saying that Greg Berhalter sucks? And let me just, before you answer that, Grant, say that at the in the in the game against Canada, you know, Christian Pulisic was pulled in you know, 30 minutes from the end of the game, did not look very happy. And after the game, Berhalter said that 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 Pulisic was suffering flu-like symptoms. He went back to England and played unbelievably well for Chelsea over the weekend, um, coming off the bench. He did not look engaged. Yeah, it was striking how many U.S. players actually had good games when they went back to their club team after not looking very good in a U.S. uniform. You know, what happened under Klinsman was that players stopped looking forward to coming into the national team and some started to dread it, in fact. And you do worry about that uh, when things aren't going well, when the team is losing like it is. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, these guys are friends, many of them, and they look forward to seeing their friends for the first time in a while. But if they get to a point where they dread coming into the national team, that's a really bad sign. And, you know, it's hard as a fan and also somebody who tries not to like have fan brain to know whether we're at the stage where it's like, all right, sometimes bad stuff happens. Maybe he can adapt and and people can figure out I'm screwing up and give him a chance not to screw up anymore. Or whether it's like, you know, this was a bad process. The players seem really unhappy. This isn't, there's not a lot of time to get this fixed, but it just feels like U.S. soccer, there's been reporting that it's a dysfunctional organization. If they were to dump Burhalter, they would be admitting that they screwed this up. There's like no way for them to spin dumping Burhalter at this point. And so you'd think that they would not be willing likely to, to, to fire him and admit that they've messed this up massively. And messed it up massively, losing two years instead of one year, which was already flushed. Right. I, I have a hard time thinking that U.S. soccer would fire Greg Berhalter in any circumstance until World Cup qualifying. And even then, I think it's unlikely during World Cup qualifying. The thing about it, though, is they waited way too long to fire Jurgen Klinsmann, and they waited in, uh, until uh, they had lost the first two games of qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. And uh, that ended up being a problem because they waited so long. When they finally bring Bruce Arena in, he doesn't get them into the World Cup. And so part of the problem is you wonder, like, should they be thinking about getting Burhalter, you know, getting rid of Burhalter sooner if this continues to be the way it is or not? And the fans, certainly, you have a lot of people calling for Burhalter to be out now. But I just don't see that happening, given that the people who hired him are still at U.S. soccer. But if it's about face-saving over results in progress and face-saving wins, that's going to be a problem for World Cup qualifying next year. Yeah, it will. And so uh, right now, I think you have to wonder if the U.S. is going to be good enough to qualify for this World Cup, because we're certainly not seeing that right now. Um, I want to go back briefly to the Sergio Dest conversation. There are other young players, Sebastian Soto, who is a dual national with Chile, Julian Araujo from Mexico. They lost a midfielder, Jonathan Gonzalez, to Mexico last year. Shouldn't another issue, Grant, be that if U.S. soccer sees these potential starters down the road, these prospects, watching the U.S. program in what is arguably a dysfunctional state right now, that's just going to reduce their desire to even consider playing for the U.S. when they have the option to play for these other countries. Yeah, that's a huge concern. Uh, it's a lot like recruiting in major college sports when you have so many 
dual nationals who have the U.S. as one of those nations that they could represent. I think the U.S. needs to have someone whose full-time job is to get recruiting done. That's one thing that Jurgen Klinsmann was very good at, was convincing dual nationals to play for the United States. And ever since Klinsmann left, they haven't done as good a job with that. Let's talk about the women's national team, which is not dysfunctional and is close to uh, getting a new coach. Are you hearing that this uh, fellow Vladko Adonofsky is going to be the guy? So extremely likely at this point that Vladko Adonofsky will become the next U.S. women's national team coach, replacing Jill Ellis, who decided not to continue after winning her second straight World Cup. Adonofsky is the coach of Rain FC, the NWSL team up in the Seattle-Tacoma area. He's won two NWSL titles. He's a uh, born in the former Yugoslavia, played indoor soccer in Kansas City, uh, and then ended up becoming a coach at the same time of the Kansas City Comets men's indoor team and the women's NWSL team in Kansas City. Uh, and he's gotten a very good reputation uh, for success and also a good reputation with the players on the U.S. women's national team. I'm told that they have pushed very hard for him, the veterans on this team, uh, to get Vlatko as their coach. Uh, currently he coaches Megan Rapino, and I'm sure having Megan Rapino in your corner helps. And I do know that the veterans of the U S women's national team have been consulted by Kate Mark Graff, who is in charge of the search as the general manager for the U S women's national team. Then, and this all feels like a little bit of a contrast to me to how the players felt about Jill Ellis. You didn't see this outpouring of love when she was named coach of the year by FIFA, uh, recently, or frankly, even after the tournament, after the World Cup victory. Um, Andonofsky seems to be sort of universally liked by the players. And, and, and I imagine that that's a that, that, that knowing that a former player, Kate Markgraf, is, is running the search makes this feel like more of a player driven hiring. It does. And, and there's a lot uh, of a history there of player power inside the U.S. women's national team. They tried to get Jill Ellis fired at yeah. one point in 2017. Didn't work, and she ended up winning two straight World Cups, so you got to give her credit for that. Um, but if you look at the history, Tom Sermani, a former coach, was pushed out by a player revolt. Mm -hmm. uh, April Heinrichs was pushed out by a player revolt. Greg Ryan was pushed out by a player revolt. So uh, I think what we have here is... Vladko Andonovsky has a lot of support from the U.S. women's team. There's not a lot of time before the 2016, I'm sorry, the 2020 Olympics uh, next summer. And I think U.S. soccer would like to avoid a situation in which the players are revolting again. And it seems very unlikely that would happen with Andonovsky. A lot of fans are asking for solidarity from the men's team on the equal pay fight. Maybe they need solidarity from the women's team on the getting a coach fired fight. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Maybe they can get some advice there. You know, I found it interesting in this whole equal pay fight uh, in gender discrimination case between the U.S. women's players and U.S. soccer that they are publicly supported now by the U.S. men's players union. Uh, we saw that happen earlier this year uh, in terms of getting equal pay. Grant Wall is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated magazine. He's also the author of Masters of Modern Soccer. Buy it. It's in paperback. Grant, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now it is time for After Balls. And ESPN had a story over the weekend about its first on-air personality, a guy named Lou Palmer, who died on Friday at the age of 83. The first live event on ESPN, which Palmer uh, was one of the broadcasters on, was a, quote, demonstration feed of a basketball game between UConn, University of Connecticut, and Athletes in Action. I wrote a piece about Athletes in Action uh, many years ago, the Christian basketball team that proselytized and wasn't bad at basketball. But that is not who we're honoring in this afterball name. The story ended by saying that Lou Palmer played baseball for Seton Hall and later in the farm systems for the New York Giants and Chicago White Sox, where he was known by his given name, Lou Puma. If you're given the name Lou Puma. Why would you change it to <laughs> Lou Palmer? I don't know. We can't ask Lou Palmer. All respect to Lou Palmer. Long and storied career. But we're going to go with Lou Puma's for this week af- week's afterballs. Uh, Stefan, what is your Lou Puma? Simi Cohen is a 33-year-old New Yorker who works in digital marketing for a big telecom company. He's got an eight-month-old daughter, is an Orthodox Jew, and loves baseball. After their fantasy drafts this spring, Cohen and some Orthodox friends swap potential team names with a Jewish or Hebrew angle. As a goof for his buddies, Cohen set the names of Major League players to a traditional Shabbos song, Baruch Kel Elyon. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Barnes, Rooks, Colaspo, Asher, Nasek, Mendoza. You don't need to know the Hebrew words to get it. Just chanting the names of Austin Barnes, George Rooks, Alberto Callaspo, Alec Asher, Joe Nusek, and Ramiro Mendoza is pretty funny. But it helps that Cohen synced up the words with screenshots of the pages from Baseball Reference for each of the name-checked players. The video went a little viral in some Jewish WhatsApp chats. Then Cohen posted it on Twitter at Don Zemmer. Don Zimmer, the longtime late baseball coach and player, but with an E because Zimmer in Hebrew means song. He did a few more to help you enter Shabbos right, he wrote on Twitter. Around Memorial Day, Cohen did a rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. It starts, Jose Canseco, Byers Dawson, Lee Light, and ends, Jose de la Torre, Spangler, Banan, Yet Cave. And in between was this. And a rocket, red gear, a bonds, bros, king in chair, Babe Ruth to the night that your flag still well. Babe Ruth for gave proof and bonds for bombs with the home run kings in the same stanza of the national anthem is incredible. A few baseball accounts retweeted that. Pat Light by the dawn's early light, who pitched 16 and two-thirds innings for the Blue Jays and Red Sox in 2016, and no more, noticed it the next day and tweeted, I'll take it, a grandson of Stu Flythe through the perilous fight, 
also commented, Cohen knew he had to keep going. He did take me out to the ball game. Fake me, yount, Thule, ball glaze. Darren Rovell tweeted about it. For the record, he erroneously said that Cohen used baseball encyclopedia for the names, not baseball reference. And then Cohen expanded his repertoire into popular music. Look, the few has long shot or wall apple tonneton. Tool sees every Thelia Buddha one side. Inch Wunsch Mormon. Which of Capilla or Legislate? Yo. That's 24 names just in the intro to Eminem's Lose Yourself from Bruce Look, who played 59 games for the Twins in 1968, to Bill Yohe, Y-O-H-E, who played 21 games for Washington in 1909, Madison Bumgarner, Pete Rose, and Chen Ming Wong show up later in the song. Cohen doesn't, of course, know all of these players. I talked to him on Sunday, his first interview, by the way, while a few blogs have written about the songs, no one had asked him about his craft. He told me he comes up with a song, cuts and pastes the lyrics, and starts searching for matches. He has some go-to last names for common words like hi for I and hand for and. Good substitutes for the include doll, Art Dahl from the 30s, or current big leaguers David Dahl and Ryan Dahl. To find matches for other words, Cohen types randomly into the baseball reference search bar. After that, he screenshots the BR pages, imports them into a movie-making app, records his shower-quality voice, and edits. Cohen says making one song takes him a couple of hours max. Justin Verlander retweeted Lose Yourself, which Cohen still can't believe, as did the account for the Baseball Hall of Fame. When Cohen asked his followers for suggestions, Pirates starting pitcher Trevor Williams told him that if he did the 2001 heavy metal song Chop Suey by System of a Down, Williams would record himself at the ballpark singing the opening line. Wake up. Wake up. Grab our brush and powder, a little Mac up. Hi, it's Carter Fredo with a shake-up. Why should you need the key soup on the tabler? Names in there include Connie Mack, Rondell White, Jimmy Key, Ed Levy, Jeff Supan, Carlos Febles, and Sean Doolittle. And that, at its core, Josh, is what Don Zemmer is. It's remembering some guys in a totally absurd way, which is wonderful because the directory of baseball history is vast and mostly forgotten, so why not memorialize it in as many stupid ways as possible? In addition to the Jewish hymns, Cohen has now recorded 16 songs, including O Canada, O Canava. Tomo Oka and Daniel Nava, and God Bless America, To the Prairies is Duda Pratt-Reese, Lucas Duda, Todd Pratt, Pokey Reese, but also Wonderwall, You're My Wonderwall, Gore John Vanderwall, We Didn't Start the Fire, New York, New York, and Country Roads, West Virgil Trucks, The Star Spangled Banner, and Lose Yourself, both just passed a million views, but my favorite because it's universally familiar, slow enough to catch all the names, and certainly deserves to be parodied, might be this little number by Billy Joel. Rich Stein, a black condo, satchel page, Dahl, Wagoner, Krause, Sheffield, Wynn, Fevin, O'Man, sitting next to me, making love to Listanaka Jin. Tanaka, Dave, Jin, to his tonic and gin, Steve Toole, Joe Liss, Masahiro Tanaka, Dave Ginn is pure genius. Listen to that one to the end to catch an appearance by Harry Diddlebach, 
who at age 42 pitched one season for the St. Louis Browns in 1896. His memory is now eternal. Before I go, Josh, Simi Cohn has given me some exclusive news. His next song will drop on Twitter at Don Zemmer during game one of the World Series. And you heard it here first. It will be I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. Wow. There was a video going around of the Astros of uh, Jose Altuve lip syncing to it. Hopefully he'll get Altuve's name worked. Do I want it that way? way? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. This stuff is great. At Don Zemmer. Josh, what's your Lou Puma? As we discussed earlier, the Astros' Jose Altuve ended the American League Championship Series with a two-run homer in the bottom of the ninth inning, making the final score six to four. Walk-off homers, once hit in the bottom of the ninth or the bottom of the tenth or any other bottom of an extra inning, can give the home team a one-run win if it's a solo homer or a two-run or three-run or four-run win. If it's a two-run or three-run or four-run shot, the latter more commonly referred to as a, quote, grand slam. Any other kind of walk-off, a walk-off walk or a walk-off hit by pitch or a walk-off balk or a walk-off steal or a walk-off single, double, or rarely a walk-off triple, those all result in a one-run victory. That's because the game ends as soon as the winning run crosses home plate. And so even if two or three runs would have scored, at the normal course of play, all you're going to get is a one-run win. But should it be that way? Pay attention, Stefan. Pay attention, listeners. I'm going to require a thumbs-up or a thumbs-down vote at a couple different points here. First, let me lay out the scenario. May 31st, 2019, Matt Carpenter of the Cardinals comes to bat against the Cubs. Bases loaded. Score tied at one, bottom of the 10th. Carpenter hits a slicing ball down the left field line. It stays fair. Bounces into the stands. As Adam Van Grack of the blog Birds on the Black noted, Carpenter should have been awarded with an automatic double. That's what you get, according to the rules. If you had a fair ball that bounced into the stands, if Carpenter had been given an automatic double, bases were loaded, that would have meant two runners, the ones on second and third, would have scored 3-1 victory for the Cardinals. But that is not what happened. Carpenter gets a single. Cardinals win 2-1. to one. All right. Preliminary vote here. Do you think Carpenter should have gotten a double or a single should the Cardinals have won three to one or two to one? Stefan. Double. Three to one. It wasn't like an option for the fielder to pick up the ball and try to throw someone out. The ball went into the stands just as a home run goes into the stands. All right, listeners, tell your dogs, tell your children, tell your partners, what is your vote? Double, single, three to one victory or two to one victory. All right. Our votes are now registered. They're locked in. Now let's get to the explanation. Who better to provide that explanation than our baseball pals, Ben and Sam? Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, co-hosts of the podcast Effectively Wild, co-authors of the book. The only rule is it has to work, except for maybe this rule, which I have questions about. I emailed Ben and Sam about this on Sunday. Ben pointed me to rule 9.06 parentheses F of the 2019 rule book. That rule reads, in part, When a batter ends a game with a safe hit that drives in as many runs as are necessary to put his team in the lead, the official scorer shall credit such batter with only as many bases on his hit as are advanced by the runner who scores the winning run. Exception laid out in Rule 906G, when the batter ends a game with a home run hit out of the playing field, hit out of the playing field, the batter and any runners on base are entitled to score. So no inside the park home runs. These are just home runs yeah. over the fence. The batter and any runners on base are entitled to score. Okay. Ben then alerted me to the fact that this home run exceptionalism, the 906G, 
did not always exist. Walk-off home runs were not always walk-off home runs. I'm reading from Wikipedia now. Prior to 1920, the game ended at the moment the winning run scored, no exceptions. This rule affected the scoring of 40 hits between 1884 and 1918 that would be now scored as game-winning home runs. Babe Ruth would have been credited with 715 career home runs had the modern rule been in effect in 1918. In a 10-inning game, Ruth's fence-clearing walk-off home run would have been a home run, was actually scored a triple because the game was over when the lead base runner reached home. So wasn't always this way. Sorry, babe. That just seems wrong, though. I'm glad we do have the home run exception. You know, you explained it well earlier, Stefan, uh, why we should uh, count home runs as home runs. But here is Ben's thought, further thought, on why it needed to be specified that a home run drives in all runs and other hits don't. Here's Ben. Maybe because... If you didn't have that rule, every walk-off hit could be a homer because the runner who had just hit the game inning single or double or whatever could keep running around the bases. The team that had just lost would have no incentive to stop him. You'd get a strange situation where the game is over, but the losing team is still trying to throw a guy out on the bases for no reason. Ben, because he's a good friend, also plugged an article that Sam wrote, Sam Miller, about, about walk-off triples, in which, and we can get into this in a future afterball perhaps, I didn't realize this, but Sam noted... They used to play the bottom of the ninth inning even when they didn't need to, like back in the 19th century. So a team would be up like seven to four, and they'd just like go out there and take their last at bat anyway. Baseball. Last licks. Last licks. Okay, but back to Ben's explanation of all of this like chicanery that could happen. It makes sense to me for every type of hit, though, that is not a ground rule double. On an automatic double, when the bounce is over the fence, you can advance all the runners in a predictable way, just as you can for a home run. Two bases for the batter, two bases for each of the runners. No possibility of foolishness, no chicanery. Just allow the runners and batter to move in the specific and predictable way that they move in non-walk-off situations. And if we're thinking about the integrity of our statistics, our precious statistics, it seems only right to give the doubler the double. If we're aiming for consistency, ground rule doubles are always treated as ground rule doubles, no exceptions. All right, Ben's response. A ground rule double isn't necessarily a more deserving double than a non-ground rule double. It's just a double that bounces in a different direction or a different park. So wouldn't it also be inconsistent to give a batter credit for one kind of walk-off double, but not another? My answer. There's more consistency if you treat some walk-off doubles the same as 99% of all doubles, as opposed to if you treat all walk-off doubles differently than the vast, vast majority of all doubles. You are reducing the population of freak doubles that are turned into singles. All right. Here comes Sam Miller, finally, to break the tie. Sam wrote in his email, he's like, I've been thinking about this for three hours before I wrote the email. Uh, (laughs) The length of a Major League Baseball game. A short Major League Baseball game. Unfortunately for me, but perhaps unsurprisingly, Sam sided with his podcast host. Of course he did. Here is Sam. The broad point of the ground rule double generally I think, Sam thinks, is to give the batter the outcome that was most likely had the ball stayed in play, a double. But in a walk-off situation with a runner on third, then the most likely outcome really is a single. The batter wouldn't have kept running past first once the winning run scored. One could apply the same rule for home runs, sure, but home runs aren't an attempt to estimate what would have happened had the ball stayed in play or whatever. Home runs are their own accomplishment. They exist as as an ultimate hitting goal to end the play and make base running unnecessary entirely. 
All right, Ben and Sam, they're smart guys. They're thoughtful. They're good at debate. We respect they, them. They know, about, they know about baseball. They know more about baseball than we do. I remain totally unconvinced. The ground rule double, some would call it the automatic double pedants. Uh, pedants would call it the automatic double because a ground rule double depends on the ground rules of a particular park. An automatic double is an automatic double in, in every ballpark. There should be walk-off automatic doubles that are two-run or three-run doubles. Matt Carpenter and others throughout the annals of our great game should have been awarded doubles and not these phony singles. Should have been three to one for the Cardinals. Register your votes again. I got the last word because it's my damn podcast. What do you think? Like if I'm right. Retweet if I'm right. Stefan, what's your final vote? You're still right. And I'm still right. (laughs) I think the delineating factor here is that like the home run, the ground rule double is sui generis. The player could walk to second base. There's no threat that anything would happen. The player could walk to home on a home run. There's no threat of anything happening on the base paths. The play ends when the ball lands in a specific spot. The batter should be credited with his act. Yeah, and I think that Ben notes, like, the issue here is that the defense is disincentivized from acting in a typical, rational way because the game is already over. They have no incentive on, like, a normal walk-off single, double, triple to actually do normal baseball things. But in this case, the defense is irrelevant. The act is over. There's no risk to the batter from for strolling. And we're right. We won this round. End of show. Point hang up. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hang up. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Register your congratulations for us on winning this debate. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, we are going to speak to the ringer's Kevin Clark about the power, the glory, the majesty of the Ravens' Lamar Jackson. I think that what the Ravens did was they see that Lamar Jackson has a skill set. And they, instead of saying, we're going to make him a John Harbaugh quarterback, we're going to make him a Greg Roman, it was, we're going to make him the best Lamar Jackson we could possibly make him. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember, Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.